0: Listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is the Agenda
0: on Dubai Eye 103.8.
1: Good morning. You are tuned into the Agenda with myself Sonal Rupani. I've got Zena Zalamea alongside me. Morning Z. Morning. We've got so much coming up on the show. I'm interested. I'm so excited about some of the stories that we have coming up. We're going to do a little update on COVID, because as we've discussed, uh, you know internally, that there have been a lot of anecdotes of people getting COVID. Uh, Something that we've been surprised about is that people are still testing. It seems to think that it's kind of just merged or melded into any other illness that people seem to have. But a lot of people testing and and testing positive for COVID. I've
2: had to hand out a few testing kits uh, for another gig because we were worried that some of our team members were getting it um, because they were in crowded spaces. But my husband said, why would you test them? No, Uh, that means they're not going to get paid for the day (laughs) (laughs) or for the week. I mean, I
1: guess that's the question. At this point, when it's being considered and it's going around similar, like, similarly to the flu, should we still be differentiating? So we do have an expert that's going to be joining us in just about an hour's time to discuss what's really happening with the resurgence of COVID and what that looks like for us going forward. We also have a little update, small, short update on a story that we covered yesterday on the show. And this was about a job ad specifically seeking a female real estate agent who could use dating apps to secure clients. I mean, we covered it. In in depth yesterday. So we won't touch on it too much, except to say that we we had gotten in touch with Nokery Jobs, which was where the ad was posted before it was taken down. And they did come back with a statement to say it was a free job posting from a potential customer. It went live briefly. We have strong quality control processes that are put in place, um, including a manual quality quality control, including as well, followed by an AI-powered screening for advertisements that go up. And during the AI check, the system detected this particular advertisement and some of the issues in the content and the post was removed from the site. So not just that, they've disabled the access of the account that's been used to relay this content. But it's definitely definitely an interesting one, that.
2: It is interesting. There was so much backlash, as we reported yesterday. But there you go. There's one good
1: use of AI that we kicked (laughs) off the show with. Exactly. And, you know, that brings us back to AI, because a topic that we're discussing today, fake news. See, how much do you worry about what you can trust when you're reading something or the information that you're getting?
2: Uh, a little bit worried, not for myself, because obviously I only go to trusted news websites. But uh, my friends keep sending me articles that are like, clearly you don't believe this. But they're like... No, it's it's quoting doctors. It's quoting politicians. Do you even know these people? So yeah. I worry that some of my friends uh, believe certain things that I don't, uh, and that can be a problem during conversations.
1: And it's really interesting because there's almost two sides of it, because part of the reason that we've seen fake news so far is the rise of social media. It's created opportunities for anyone who wants to put something out there. So we're getting with that a lot of made up information because people can. At the same time, it's offering different perspectives from the common biases we see within the mainstream media. And, you know, that allows for alternative viewpoints that may have been unrepresented before. So it's obviously got two sides to that story. But the rise of AI fake news is really creating a leveling up in this misinformation, as it's been described as a misinformation super spreader by an article in The Washington Post. And... Since May, according to a research organization that tracks misinformation, NewsGuard, they did a study to show websites hosting AI-created false articles have increased by more than 1,000%. They've gone up from 49 detected sites to more than 600. And these aren't just articles that are going up or individual little social media posts. These are whole websites that have been developed as fake news sites. So, you know, you could take something like Something that sounds like business insider which you already know business insider you create something that sounds very similar sounds credible So people believe it and there's a whole site that's been entirely constructed by AI That's shocking and very worrying and to join us to talk about this issue today is Eamon Alashkar He's founder and CEO of overwrite.ai. He's also a generative AI Pioneer we've had him on the reboot with us before so Eamon. Thank you so much for joining us on the agenda
3: this morning. Good morning, Sonon. Good morning, Zina. Thank you for having me.
1: Now, Eamon, i got to start with how much have you noticed this in your own life, in your own world, this not just fake news, which we've been talking about for quite a while and we all know is out there, but specifically AI-generated fake news, which creates so much, such a magnitude of, of the ability to, to create more more of it?
3: Um, I would say that in the realms of social topics, political topics, it is proliferant. You were talking just now about websites um, that are dedica- that have been created to and dedicated to the um, uh, creation of fake news. I'll go further. There's now a channel, a news channel called Channel A1 uh, or Channel 1 AI Personalized Global News. It's launching next year, and they are already showcasing on their website. You can go to it now. You can Google it, Channel, um, channel 1 AI. They are showcasing news reels, narratives, presented, uh, gener- that have been created by generative AI and that are being presented by generative AI human avatars or g- AI generated human right. avatars, I should say. Yeah. So, so not a
1: real sort of news presenter, but an AI avatar news presenter who's also doing articles that are generated by AI.
3: Right. Exactly. So the entire gamut. Right. That's really concerning. That's a leveling up of, of a leveling up right. of fake news.
1: Yeah, and I mean, do we know, are, is that going to be fact-checked? Are there going to be humans on the other side of this? Is this just to make it easier, but that we can still trust that information?
3: We don't know who's behind it. Right. You can Google this website. You can watch the videos that they've put. That started to put it out. They're announcing that they're going to launch next year. We don't know who's behind it. We don't know what the agenda is behind it.
1: Yeah, and, you know, John's brought up an interesting point on the text line saying, unfortunately, most of the major news outlets tell news as if it's fact, as if it's correct, when it is actually their opinion and viewpoint, depending on their ownership and political leanings and he's pointed out a number of mainstream news outlets internationally and the way that they report the same story and how different that reporting of the same story could be. So I think there's this greater awareness that none of the news is technically factual. It's all biased in some way or that's another. And yet, you know, how do how do we differentiate between news that's biased versus fake news it's it's a lot for people to kind of digest and to try to figure out themselves well
3: we ourselves are biased as well it's not less, it's not just the news the news is a reflection of us so the yeah. news that we we default to is a representation of our own inherent biases and you know there are events that are taking place in the in the political space at the moment that we are all aware of and we are absorbing information based on what we want to absorb so Our own biases are feeding into the AI that is then reciprocally feeding back into our own biases. And that is, I don't see how we can stop that. I don't see how we can uh, defend against the rise and proliferation of um, AI-generated fake news until after the fact. Until we have enough of it that we've trained ourselves to recognize it and in identifying it are then able to ignore it.
1: Yeah. And part of the issue, again, is when we talk about AI, how easy it is, just the, the abilities that it creates that otherwise would take some skills. So, for example, how much knowledge or work would it take up a site called, let's say, Dubai Eyes or <laughs> Dubai Nose, <laughs> however you want to say it, using AI? I mean, what's involved if somebody wanted to just whip that site up, use an existing platform that, some, you know, that people know and create something just slightly adjacent that could fool people?
3: It's been done before, yeah, and the resources and technology is there for it to be done again. I mean, look, you—I'll tell you an interesting fact. In in 2024, countries that have populations amounting to about four billion people, half of the population of the globe, including America, Britain, Indonesia, and India, have general elections, and we've already seen in in, in um, localized elections in. During 2023, like in Chicago, there was a mayoral election earlier this year, where deep fake misinformation was spread about one of the campaign uh, uh, candidates the day before their local election. Mm-hmm. His voice was synthesized using deep deepfake uh, technology to 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 um, circulate to create a message that was then circulated to damage his campaign. Now we can expect similar malicious acts uh, uh, in in the, in the democratic voting systems of these countries that, like I said, four billion people are, uh, are represented by what impact is that going to have on their policies? How how are people who are under-equipped to identify what's fake news and AI-generated fake news going to tackle it when it's facing them? And it will face them. And we're going to see the impact of it very soon.
1: And I think there's kind of a shift that's happening. I think there's almost been this perception of like, okay, fake news, I can figure it out because I'm clued in, but maybe it's going to fool my grandparents. You know, almost a bit of a conceited... Uh, approach there I think that we've had and I feel like that's going to change because the more compelling and more convincing it gets it's going to affect everybody that there might be a situation where nobody can really tell what's fake or not you're going to have to check every single thing that you read currently how much I mean how much are you checking of what comes your way
3: so um there is certainly a generational distinguishing factor in this. You know, I have to fact check for my mother, who is a right. grandparent in herself, what she's absorbing because often she's <laughs> um, getting information that is shared with her without uh, having the tools with which to you know um, discern its factual accuracy or not. Now, the younger generation who absorb their information through social media much more than the older generation, may may in themselves fall prey to the misinformation or be the ones to be uh, better equipped at identifying what is fake and what is misinformation Mm. because they are native to that medium. So the older generations typically get their information from mainstream media often, as you said, asymmetrical. Um, They know how to deal with that. The younger generation are getting their information from social media. They're probably gonna adapt to know how to deal with the misinformation there.
1: So what I'm taking from that is, Elder millennials and even people of the generation above are now the grandparents in the in the new situation, in the new AI <laughs> well, the <situation>. baby boomers. <laughs> oh, the, right? <laughs> the
3: Gen Zers are changing the world uh, you know, in many wonderful ways. And I do think that because they're native to absorbing information from social media, right. they're getting their news from it. They're going to be able to figure out how to discern better than we are.
1: We've been talking about fake news, and that's because of a survey that said since May, websites that are hosting AI-created fake articles have increased by more than 1%. 1000%. It's already an issue that we've been grappling with for some time, but the, the fact that this has really ballooned from 49 sites to more than 600 according to an organization that tracks misinformation called NewsGuard uh, is is definitely something that's alarming. In fact, On the Reboot, a show that Zena and I do together, we did interview previously Jeff Allen. He's ex-Facebook, and he now leads the Integrity Institute in the U.S. We talked about troll farms and how information can really play a role in getting you clout and money.
4: The financial motivation behind spreading disinformation can actually be one of the more troubling ones and, and the worrying ones, right? Because when a group, when an organization finds a financially profitable method that tends to grow as big as it can, as fast as it can, you know, very rapidly, right? Like there's a very clear incentive for putting it into place and scaling it up and and spreading more and more. And so we really do see like a blurring of motivations and reasons behind the spread of disinformation, which eventually just means that there's always reason to do it and that the organizations doing it are going to become more and more sophisticated.
1: Now, to share his thoughts with us on this situation, we have Ravi Rahman. He is publisher of Fast Company Middle East. He's joining us now via Microsoft Teams. Good morning, Ravi
5: good morning to you snow
1: thanks so much for joining us on this subject because I'm sure it's something that you've given a lot of thought to when we talk about AI and and the role that it's playing in misinformation the fact that it's so much faster so much more efficient than when uh, what a human can create have this has this kind of backfired is it threatening the essence of journalism from your point of view
5: uh, to a certain extent, yes. I mean, we when we thought of AI really doing faster, more, more productive work, we never imagined that it could be utilized to really churn out fake content. But what's really surprising, it's not just the quantity of fake content, but it's also the quality. Over the years and over the months, the kind of high quality fake content that's come in, whether it's videos or imagery is really shocking.
1: Yeah, it's really compelling. I mean, we've done experiments on our show to sort of have deep fake audio, compare it to real <coughs> audio and test people. Can you tell the difference? And so often it really is difficult for people to tell. So there are millions of people who maybe don't practice critical thinking, believe every article they read. What is your advice for people and, and what they're receiving, how they might be able to start fact checking? As, as one of our listeners has asked, what's the best way to fact check
5: so the best way is always go to credible sources, and, and, and uh, I think you mentioned in your uh, program where you go back to content sources which are really credible, which have historical context. There are very few, but they are the ones you should go back to. Second is always verify, cross-verify. Has this article appeared? Has it been mentioned in a couple of other news websites, credible sites? and then verify, don't just believe what you hear. But the problem is not just about you know, verification. The problem is that most of the news content that you get nowadays is not on a news platform. It's mostly on communication platforms. It could be on WhatsApp, where verifying it becomes very difficult. You just look at the headlines and the screenshot and believe what, what the news says. So that's that's the other aspect you have to really look at where does this content come from? Is this image right? Has it been published or verified or even mentioned by other news
1: portals? And Eamon, you have something to add on that point.
3: Yeah, I, I would um, I would caution, to, to Ravi's earlier point, I'd caution that, you know, if one was to look for where c- a certain information is out there and Widespread, one may find it on on multiple media platforms, especially mainstream media platforms that are asymmetric, that have a particular narrative that they want to push, mm. subject to the agenda of the uh, the key influences. Also, if you're cross-verifying it, you might then find that pl- mediums that are trying to balance out that asymmetry have been muted. Uh, people have been sh- we know that people are getting shadow banned. We need, uh, depending on what their saying we know that therefore that asymmetry (coughs) To clarify
1: when people are shadow banned what that means is when they're posting about something on social media that all of a sudden they're realizing that their posts are being somewhat hidden not receiving their full attention that they would typically get
3: absolutely so then if you were to the uh, if you were to apply the 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 the, the, um, rules of thumb of going out there and verifying yes absolutely one should and one should be cynical in so doing but bear in mind that there is an, uh, an imbalance and that imbalance is now starting to come through in social media um perpetuated by the algorithms that support the social media sites themselves. Um, So I think the solution to add to Ravi's suggestions is also to um, engage in dialogue with the other side, whoever the other side is in your particular point of view, engage in dialogue with them.
1: And I think that brings the important point of bias, which we touched on earlier, because some people will believe an article even if it looks fake because it supports their biases, it supports what they already believe and people have become really entrenched Ravi in receiving that kind of content. What does it mean for websites like Fast Company that are sort of long established traditional media companies? The fact that people are really looking for content that just reaffirms what they already think?
5: Uh, I completely agree. So we we classify news consumers or or readers into three buckets the first is people who already have biases and look for information in and article which actually validate their points of view the second is people who are really on the fans who are fairly balanced who would be influenced by the kind of information that they receive across various sources and the third are critical thinkers who would really fact check look at other sources, verify. So for a brand like Fast Company, it's, it's our role is honestly to target the middle, people who are really influenced by reading information and getting information across various platforms, give them a 360 degree view, also be transparent in terms of our storytelling. You know, as media, we also need to tell people how a story is generated, what are our sources, who are we spoken to, so that they get a balanced view of this article has been done after speaking to three or four experts, people on the ground, so the readers understand the value of true reporting and true true storytelling.
1: Thank you so much, Ravi, for your insights on this subject matter and for joining us today.
5: Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: And Eamon, thank you to you as well for bringing your insights, as always, our resident AI generative
3: AI expert here on Dubai Thank you so much. Always a pleasure.
1: And I'm now welcoming into the conversation my good friend, host of Offscript Extra Time, and twin dad, of course, Robbie Greenfield. How's it going, Rob?
0: Have you just added that onto my, you know, resume? (laughs) Is it just to kind of... Will you will you now forever refer to me as twin dad? Yes, yes it's, <laughs> a me. it's a permanent Is fixture.
1: It's a permanent fixture in your title now. <laughs> it will always be forever onwards, at least for the next sort of, I would say, six months. It's always going to be yeah. twin dad, Robbie I, Greenfield. Full name I as well. I think
0: after after a 15-minute monologue on off-scripts last night, I think I need to dial down the, uh, the twin dad's kind of narrative. I think our listeners are getting already... After just one day, a little bit sick of it, but uh, that's, we that's, wait to see. That's not what
1: I'm hearing. I'm hearing that you're already <laughs> oh, really? you're already dishing out <laughs> advice to new fathers who are newer fathers than you are. I am, and you're we only had a less in. than two weeks old as a dad. <laughs> well, that's
0: it. Our, our twins are on their eleventh day on this planet, and uh, we had a message in from a gentleman who whose little baby is seven days old. So I, I felt like I was in a position to offer advice. You know, he's four days behind me on on the upward learning curve, so. It just kind of made me feel like a bit of a veteran um, of fatherhood. I, I, I suddenly had a, a you know a renewed sense of importance around my role, and I was able to <laughs> pontificate and offer him a lot of unsolicited advice.
1: Yeah, you know, you're a real authority on the matter already, because when you think of the exponential <laughs> learning curve, that four days, it counts for a lot, clearly. It
0: does, yeah, yeah. exactly. It's, I mean, it's almost 50%, let's face it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, in addition to being twin dad, you are a sports expert on uh dubai eyes so supposedly let's let's, (laughs) let's, you still are somehow despite the fact that you're a twin dad you've managed to keep up with what's been going on and we're into the final 16 of the champions league can you tell me which games are you watching closely that are coming up and when when is it all going to kick off
0: Okay, so it all takes place at uh, the first legs of the last 16. Okay, the group stages, they, they are done. The 16 teams that have progressed through to the knockout stages, they were drawn yesterday. Um, the first legs of those matches are going to be taking place in February on the 13th and the 14th, respectively, and then a week later on the 20th and the 21st as we build up to that Wembley final on the 1st of June. A lot of people are saying they're a little bit underwhelmed. By the Champions League, it, it's been called. I think on uh, on X yesterday one of the worst draws in recent memory, and I've got to say, so I'm kind of I'm kind of on that boat. I, I'm not particularly excited about this Champions League draw. I don't know whether that's due to the fact that we don't have Lionel Messi in the Champions League anymore or Cristiano Ronaldo in the Champions League anymore. I just feel like a lot of these fixtures are a bit. Ho-hum. I have to say it's been a very good evening or a very good draw for the English clubs taking part. Manchester City will face Copenhagen. They're a team that Manchester City have beaten before at this stage of the competition. You won't find anyone worth their salt in football punditry who are tipping Copenhagen to get past the defending champions Manchester City. For Arsenal, who I tell you what, are flying a little bit quietly under the radar in this Champions League, given the fact that historically, Arsenal, they were out of the Champions League for a long time. Prior to that, they were very much the team that were getting beaten at this stage of the competition by your Barcelonas, by your Bayern Munichs in years past. They were, they were cannon fodder for the real big kings of Europe. Now, the, the shoe is on the other foot to some extent. A lot of people are saying Arsenal actually have a team that, that could go deep in this competition. They're facing the Portuguese champions, Porto, in the last 16, an eminently winnable draw for Mikel Arteta's men. Elsewhere, you've got a tie between uh, Italian team Napoli, the champions of Italy, taking on Barcelona. Uh, PSG taking on Real Sociedad. Hard to get particularly excited about that one. You'd expect PSG to make it through to the quarterfinals. The last year's finalists, Inter Milan, they'll face Atletico Madrid. That's a tough tie for both of those teams. Eindhoven take on Dortmund. Lazio meet Bayern Munich. uh, And the other match is, is RB Leipzig taking on Real Madrid. I wonder... Real Madrid with Jude Bellingham in the form that he's in, they might be looking to win a record-breaking or record-setting 15th Champions League European Cup. But uh, it's going to take something, I think, to stop Manchester City retaining the title if, and it's a big if, they can recover the form that they showed in the earlier part of this year. Because right now, as we spoke about on the show last night, they're in a little bit of a lull at the Mm -hmm. moment. They're in a little bit of a sticky patch.
1: Right. Let's, let's move on now to golf a little bit, because Victor Hovland, he said he has no plans to join Live Golf, but he's also been a bit critical of the PGA. Could you see him, like some before him, making the switch despite saying they wouldn't?
0: <laughs> he wouldn't be the first yeah. to make a dramatic U-turn in, in the world of golf. John Rahm, only a few months ago, was saying that he hated the format of Live. Uh, next thing you know, he's photographed in a Live bomber jacket with a big cheesy grin and a big thumbs up. <laughs> underneath the headline rom signs for live in 500 million dollar deal i guess 500 million dollars will persuade almost anyone yep. who had a view on something if someone if if you said to me uh, you know i'll give you 500 million dollars uh, you've got to become the number one fan of greta thunberg i'd say <laughs> you know what greta thunberg is welcome around my house any day of the week for dinner you know what i mean yeah. it's one of those it's it, it, that will ch- 500 million dollars is a very good bargaining chip to change one's opinion on something and suddenly Hey, Presto, John Rahm is a massive fan of the Live Golf format. He's always wanted to test himself in that Live Golf <laughs> format. He wants to, quote-unquote, grow the game. That's, I mean, the shamelessness of this, Sonal. We're not stupid. He's taking us for fools. He's taking us for absolute mugs. He says he wants to grow the game. He wants to grow his bank account, and he's grown it incredibly impressively. Uh, but, you know, Victor Hovland, I'd be a little bit disappointed if he made a U-turn because I feel like Victor is someone who... He does, he's not a flash guy. He doesn't, you know, he, I don't think he covets the sort of the riches and the luxuries of, that, that, that come along with being a successful golfer. He did win $18 million when he won the FedEx Cup a little bit earlier on this year. But it seems to me like he's unbelievably down to earth. You know, he's, mm. uh, he's one of these guys that, you know, really wants to better himself as a golfer. He's actually said that. He said, if I moved to live, I wouldn't become a better golfer because there's no cuts. You're not testing yourself week in, week out. there there isn't the need there for that sharpness because, you know, there's no jeopardy. If you play badly, you still get to play on the weekend. It's a totally different format. So I'm with Victor. I completely agree with what he's saying. He did come out swinging against the PGA tour management, which is really indicative of the fact that a lot of players have been left very disillusioned by how the PGA tour have handled this whole thing by the closed behind closed doors, secret meeting. It's been a heck of a strange year mm. for golf. But um, you know, I really hope that we keep Victor Hovland on this side of the line. We keep him on the PGA Tour and the D P World Tour, because at the end of the day, I prefer those to live golf. I'm not a fan either of the format for Live Golf and I want the best players to be playing in the kind of traditional space. And yeah, we need to make changes to that space and maybe the the golfing schedule needs to improve and enhance and, and I'm sure there are plans to do that. But You know, we are rumbling ever closer to this December 31st deadline that gets talked about, which will ratify this new deal. I mean, forget Roosevelt. This is all uh, this is all (laughs) they're talking about in the world of golf. This is the new deal. Was it President Hoover or was it Franklin Roosevelt? I can't remember. I can't remember.
1: Anyway, one of the the U.S.
0: presidents (laughs) talking about a new deal. We're talking about golf's new deal. And quite frankly, I don't see there being a hope in hell of ratifying this thing in what? What's December the 31st? It's less than two weeks away.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly that. All right. Well, I guess we'll wait to see what happens with that. But- <laughs> so
0: basically, no no, no clear, you know, really that, that there is so much confusion in the world of golf at the moment. And there are so many disgruntled players that I think we just have to wait and see how it all plays out. But uh, in the meantime, you know, we're looking forward personally to, to January and, and some fantastic events on the DP World Tour. The Hero Dubai Desert Classic, the brand new... Dubai Invitational the Dubai Creek, Dubai 103.8 will be very much broadcasting live from both of those events. So let's focus on some actual golf maybe. And uh, let's leave the, the, you know, the arguing across a boardroom table to, uh, you know, the the, the big suits on the the respective tours. and, And let's hope, fingers crossed, they manage to sort something out that actually benefits fans of the game. Because I feel like fans have been somewhat lost in all of this.
1: I feel like that was a little bit of a personal kind of plea. In fact, there just I
0: was. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've, I've resorted to begging.
1: Yeah. Well, Rob, thank you so much for taking some time away from the kids to join us, and we'll hear you again on off script <laughs> oh, from a five p.m. today.
0: Trust me, it's it's a pleasure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, i no, looking for
1: <laughs> Just <laughs> a little bit forward. of spite for you, twin dad, Rob.
0: That's exactly it. Well, right. no problem. You're, you're most welcome.
1: All right. Take care.
0: You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda.
0: On Dubai Eye
1: 103.8. And we're turning now to video games. That's because Grand Theft auto. It's an absolute cultural sensation. I'm not even a gamer. And it's hard not to know the significance of GTA, as it's called. And the reason we're talking about it is GTA 6 is expected to make a return in 2025. It's the first release of the the game series since 2013. And in fact, the trailer for it leaked this month. And to join us now to talk a little bit more about it is Arafat Ali Khan. He is co-founder of Middle East Film and Comic Con. He's also our pop culture expert here on Dubai i good morning Arafat.
6: morning sono very interesting topic
1: it is indeed <laughs> tell me about the level of excitement in the gamer community about this upcoming launch even though it's still more than a year away
6: i was quite disappointed by the 2025 date but uh, you know not surprised but yes it's uh, absolutely on another level as you said this this game you know the, the 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 previous iteration GTA 5 has been around for more than 10 years over three different console generations and we keep on playing it again and again and again. You know because it's 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 that good yeah. uh, and it's that engaging. So we have been waiting for this announcement <laughs> for a very very long time. It's it's probably going to be one of the best selling games. Ever potentially,
1: and yet there has been a tremendous amount of controversy mm. around it, of course, because it's been banned in Brazil. There's so much yeah. violence in it that it's got cries yeah. of protest from certain org- organizations, um, mm-hmm. from the Haitian American Grassroots Coalition to the UK's Freedom from Torture organization. So, tell us mm-hmm. about the level of violence that we're talking about here, and why mm-hmm. is this se- Why is this deemed so different from what's what's already out there?
6: See, it's it's very interesting. First of all, you know, it's very important to say that this game is not made for kids. It's a it's a game for adults. It's a it's a mature content game. So kids should never be getting their hands on this in the first place. So, you know, this game, yes, it is it is uh, violent in the sense that you can indiscriminately kill um, you know anyone walking along the street and. In all sorts of ways, with all sorts of weapons, and you know, it is quite gratuitous. Um, but you know, uh, I have to say that when you look at any adult content or, or violent content, like you have movies, you know, you have uh, books, you have uh, art, um, you need to sort of look at it in the in the in the same vein, because the most recent Grand Theft Auto games. Especially GTA 4 and 5, uh, which is the most recent iteration, um, they are extremely story-driven as well. You know, you have characters in there. You play three different characters, okay, and one of them is actually reprehensible. He's horrible. And while I was playing that part of the game, I was just like, ah, I don't want to do this stuff that they're that this character is is doing. You know, it's really quite horrible and you know, it, it makes me think of other mediums of of uh, media and art because they're supposed to evoke a, a an emotional response, if you will, right? Uh, not all art, and I'm talking about sort of the traditional concept of art that you see in a gallery, um, n- not all of it is supposed to be, you look at it and go, oh, wow, that's so pretty. No, some of it is supposed to evoke the emotion of maybe revulsion or, you know, other kinds of emotion that aren't, necessarily positive. Um, So I believe that gaming also does the same thing through the story and through depiction of of characters. You know, you're you're doing it. And I think it's it's more engaging than traditional art because you're playing the part of that character. So you're doing things that you don't necessarily want to. Um, at least I was, you know. I hope people <laughs> weren't enjoying some of those elements. That would be uh, a bit worrying. Uh, but yeah, that's that's my take on 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 that on the game and and the the violent aspects that everyone talks about.
1: You know, putting together two of the things that you've said, there are parts that actually as a responsible adult that made you deeply uncomfortable, but at least you have sort of fully formed value system to let you know that maybe you don't have to do those things or you shouldn't do those things if it makes you uncomfortable. And also what you said about is it's not for kids. Let's be honest though, kids are gonna manage to get their hands on it. When you put those two factors together of of kids maybe not being quite as well formed and being put in that situation, I can see why there's a lot of concern around it.
6: Sure. Um, Look, uh, when, you know, when I was young uh, in the 80s uh, and shouldn't have been watching movies like Robocop and Terminator, I was. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we all do that, right? Kids find a way. Um, But, you know, I'm (laughs) I believe I'm quite normal, apart from being a crazy collector and uh, you know, pop culture guy um, and, you know, it never made me want to go out and, and hurt anyone uh, ever. So, you know, I, I guess this, it, it can turn into a, a, a uh, conversation of nature versus nurture mm-hmm. uh, then as well, that your upbringing and your environment, you know, um, and, and I do get it, you know, there are places that where where kids are growing up that are inundated with violence and gangs, um, so they you know are influenced more by that, and then playing this game or games like this or consuming media like this could make them a little bit more susceptible or open to 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 you know replicating what they see or hear. So so I do get it. So but again you know i'll go back to that point of nature versus nurture i think we need to take care of our uh, our children regardless you know and and they should be able to see something and be able to um to say that oh this is right and this is wrong but i'm also a realist and, and understand that sometimes that's not possible um and and you know bad things do happen. So I understand the outcry, but then at the same time, I'll go back to other forms of media that they are consuming as well. I mean, you have uh, podcasts, you have TikTok, you know, where you have people on there that are talking about not very nice things or, you know, Mm -hmm. doing bad things to other people or to yourself. So where do we draw the line? You know, if we're if we're going to talk about, um, oh, this game is bad and, you know, no one should be looking at this, then the same scrutiny should be taken to other forms of media. Um, So, you know, for me, uh, this is a strong word, but sometimes there's that hypocrisy, you know, when it comes to attacking the gaming world and the gaming industry uh, and saying, oh, this is the reason for the violence in the world. Yeah. Uh, no, not exactly. I think we need to take everything together Uh, to to say things like that.
1: And that's an interesting sort of uh, question that you pose. And I'll actually put that out to our parents out there. Where do you draw the line when there's so much information that's coming in, not just in gaming, but in social media, et cetera? How do you approach it? Let us know on 4001. Arafat, that's all we have time for. Thank you so much for getting in touch and giving us some insights on what's going on with GTA.
6: Always a pleasure.
1: Hour, We wanted to discuss the fact that we've heard a lot of COVID cases amongst people we know. Have you out there, if you've had friends, family, co-workers who've been coming down with COVID? As Zena and I expressed earlier that we're surprised people are still testing. For a lot of people, it feels like the cold or the flu at this point. But it has definitely... Seen a documented rise around the world. So, just a few examples that have been out there. Singapore recorded 56,000 more cases in a week of COVID. There was a rise in number of people being hospitalized with COVID-19 in Northern Ireland over the course of this month as well. In the U.S., there are reports that over the past month, hospitalizations have increased 200% for COVID-19. But considering the season that we're in, is this a surprise? Well, we decided to get in touch with Dr. Howard Podolsky. is group chief Chief executive officer for Cambridge Medical and Rehabilitation Center, and he's been a COVID expert over the years here on Dubai Eye. So I asked him if this is consistent with what he's been seeing here in the UAE.
4: We are. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you, you you bringing this up because we are seeing worldwide a, a global spike, an increase in, in uh, the number of COVID cases, and that is certainly the case in the Emirates as well. Uh, not just anecdotally. um, We are seeing uh, increased numbers of patients being treated. Um, We're seeing a modest uptick in hospitalizations, but um, nothing as compared to the waves of COVID that we had in, you know, back in 2020, 21, and 22. So what we're seeing is, yes, we're seeing an increase in the total number of cases, but it's commensurate with this time of year. This is not unexpected because we're also seeing an increased number of other respiratory viral cases, including influenza and RSV, which are going up. And we expect that during this time of the year when um, these uh, viral infections oftentimes spread and people are closer together.
1: And what strain are we on at this point? I think most people I know have lost track. I've seen something about JN1.
4: Yes, we there there are Right now, I mean, there there are more than three, but there are three predominant strains that are that are floating around at the moment. Uh, JN1 is is uh, one of the most prevalent. Uh, there's another one called HV1, and there's a third one, EG5. Now, uh, these variants um, have a lineage relationship to um, the more dreaded. Uh, uh, COVID virus, the Omicron variant, going back to late 2021 and early 2022. They are not Omicron, but they are related genetically to them as they have evolved over the last two years. So that's what we're seeing at this point in time. And it's expected. These viruses are not static. They continue to evolve. And we've continued to have cases worldwide, as you know. Uh, Unfortunately, COVID hasn't hasn't gone away or completely abated. And so as it continues to infect people, the virus, it's a smart virus, it continues to genetically evolve. And uh, researchers have been able to look at the genetic footprint or fingerprint of these, of these viruses and they're able to, to see that they do have a lineage going back largely to Omicron.
1: And in terms of the symptoms now as well that people are experiencing, it seems to be quite a mix. I mean, one of our colleagues said her husband who was fine the first two times that he got it, which already tells you that he's on his third time says something. But that third time was the one that really floored him the most recent time just, you know, a week or two ago. So on the whole, is there any kind of um, anything we can say about the symptoms that we're seeing of this particular strain?
4: Anecdotally, I've, I've seen and I've read a fair amount of case uh, reports to suggest that some of those early symptoms, like the loss of taste and the loss of smell and osmia, um, that seems to be far less frequent with these current variants, um, and that what we're seeing is typically more routine upper respiratory types of infections. Bad colds, you know, people feel really lousy, bad head colds, a lot of coughing. Uh, fatigue, sore throat, lack of energy. Uh, that's what we're tending to see at this point in time. Obviously, we'll see in some cases fever, chills. Some people will have loss of appetite, but the, the that loss of smell and taste that was so prevalent in the first waves of COVID doesn't seem to be anywhere near what it was, but people are still getting sick. Um, and as you're, you're a friend or colleague um, experienced, unfortunately, as these viruses become smarter and evolve over time, we are lagging behind on reacting to the vaccine. So the vaccines that are currently available uh, are really, really good, but they're still not as good as what the virus is in terms of evolving. We do have, um, I believe Pfizer uh, came out with uh, an updated fall vaccine that was initially promulgated in the United States, uh, the UK, and Europe, and I think it's working its way here, should help to ameliorate some of the worst effects of uh, being infected. But uh, again, these are smart viruses, and these these vaccines, you know, don't give us 100% protection. What they do is oftentimes make the infections less burdensome to the patient.
1: And, you know, on the topic of vaccines, as as far as I can tell, anecdotally, again, people aren't really getting the vaccine anymore. But are we going to see it become something because, as you said, it's consistent with this time of year. Perhaps we're going to expect this every time around wintertime. Is it going to be like a flu shot where it's expected that you get your flu shot and you get your COVID shot every single year?
4: You know, that's what we're looking at. And, and and if you follow the lead for the United States uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they seem to be leaning in that direction of trying to promulgate an annual COVID vaccine that will be reformulated based upon what they anticipate will be the most prevalent strains. So I am, I am anticipating that we're going to, you know, in, in years to come, we're going to get our flu shot, we're going to get our COVID vaccine, Uh, There may be some subsets of the population that may have to get a biannual COVID vaccine, depending on their immune status and their age and so on. But uh, I do expect that we're going to see this as a regular occurrence, because I think, uh, as we've experienced now since 2020, since 2019, I mean, COVID is with us. It's It's not going away, but it's something we're learning how to live with. And I think the vaccines, as they get better as they become more updated year over year, will continue to evolve with that just like we've done with um, influenza and the flu vaccine.
1: And, you know, you did say it's not going away. It's something that we're going to live with. And most people are done with the era of masks, of social distancing. Um, you know, you mentioned potentially an annual shot that we discussed. But what does this look like going forward as people look to protect themselves? I mean, I suppose we have a better consciousness and awareness of how to protect ourselves from all diseases after what we've experienced in the last few years.
4: Absolutely. And I think what what we've learned is that you're right. You know, today, as you walk through the airports or the malls, you see very few, if anybody, masking. Social distancing is all but pretty much gone away. I think what we've come to is this understanding that people take their own personal risk assessment and they decide what they're comfortable with. And so, there may be some people, you know, we're coming up on the holiday season for travel. You'll see some people who decide that they feel they feel more comfortable and they feel safer if they wear a mask while they're traveling. or uh, while well, they're out in public. Other people will not. And so I think we all have come to begin to learn to be individual mini statisticians, whether we wanted to or not. And we kind of are learning how to be comfortable with our own risk assessments as to what we think is is best. Now, I still encourage people who think that they either may have COVID or influenza or RSV or other respiratory uh, born viruses that... Um, that, you know, they do wear a mask while they're ill to, to cut down on the spread of infection. That's a responsible thing to do. But for the rest of us that are just thinking about protecting themselves, again, we, we make our own risk assessment. I'm still a big fan of hand hygiene uh, and, and just making sure that we protect the most vulnerable of the population as well, um, especially those who are immunocompromised as well as the elderly. Um, and making sure, because they're the ones that are most susceptible to the most serious forms of these diseases. So we just, we just need to be smart, and I think we can still enjoy our time together. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda.
4: On Dubai
0: Eye
1: 103.8. See, it's fair to say everybody's got different preferences when it comes to work communications. I mean, you're a big WhatsApper, aren't you? I am. I personally prefer email. I just think it's more orderly. I think if you've got something important to say to me, I think a WhatsApp oftentimes, that was different. You and I work closely together, but let's say something's coming on our work WhatsApp group and it's an important announcement. I hate getting that on WhatsApp because I think it's going to get missed with all my other personal messages. I don't pay as close attention to WhatsApps. I feel that, um, you know, I might just look at my phone while I'm on air. The notification is gone, but I haven't truly read the message.
2: Okay. on the flip side, if I receive an important announcement and I need to read it now, now WhatsApp would be the perfect medium because I'll read my email, you know, in two days. Mm. Basically, I'm not a big email reader.
1: Well, everybody has a different preference. And I think I'm just maybe a bit older in spirit than you are because (laughs) emails are on their way out, it seems. And this is a trend that we've seen reported in, in different senses. It seems to be a Gen Z trend that they're pushing back against emails, just not interested
2: they're just not interested. In fact, during the pandemic in 2020, there was a survey of 1,000 workers. Um, it's done by a consulting firm, Creative Strategies, and uh, they surveyed people in the work tool usage found. Uh, that They found that while... People over 30 cited email as their most used tool. It
1: only ranked in fourth place for people under 30. So those are Gen Zers. Am I right? Yeah, I would assume so. Exactly. Well, Gen Z, I think there, you could still be a millennial under 30, maybe. I don't really know how these delineations work. But.
2: <laughs> I should have researched it. But there's a more recent survey that says, you know, of 8,000 workers conducted by Slack. It's an email competitor. It's basically all of your work correspondence lives on Slack and uh, one poll in in, uh, back in August, they f- they further underlined the ways that email is failing in the workplace. And those surveyed cited frustrations over emails not being answered, uh, being addressed by the wrong name, and having to answer the same questions repeatedly as among the reasons they disliked email as a work tool.
1: And it's not just about emails being on their way out. It's that kind of formal business language sometimes that's used in emails that people don't seem to have an interest in anymore. You were telling me a story about, you've been working with quite a few people in Gen Z recently. And uh, some of them are pretty casual. They are very
2: casual. So we were working with legislators from all around the world. And this was during COP28. So we had a little WhatsApp group. And one of the legislators emailed us to say, thank you so much for all your hard work. And one of our staff members is a Gen Zer. And he just replied, DW bout it. You know, don't D- worry about D-W it. About it. <laughs> like about it. No, D-W, DW about it. He's not even up about it. DW bout it. How did
1: you feel when you read that?
2: I just burst out laughing, but that's that's how they communicate in their workplace. You know, they're filmmakers, they're production people. Yeah. And so for them, it is acceptable. But one of the people I've worked with is Zara. She's 19 and she clearly isn't a fan of emails. Emails are going out of fashion. From a Gen Z perspective, we want everything done ASAP. And the best way to communicate that is directly through WhatsApp. It's on your phone. It's on your laptop. It's more convenient. Plus, I don't have to deal with spam emails. I don't have to deal with emails bouncing back. I just need their phone number and I'm set. Besides that, I think social media has played a more influential role for Gen Z in the working space because now the go-to networking platform is Instagram and it's more easier to market yourself there rather than LinkedIn and other social medias. And another Gen Zer, Anoushka is in the same boat. She thinks emails are really on their way out. I do agree that email is on the verge of death, at least for Gen Z working with gen z and being a gen z myself we usually use whatsapp
1: for more professional conversations work related conversations it's much simpler it's easier and you don't have to worry about your email getting lost in the spam folder whatsapp
2: is just on your phone you just need their phone number and along with that social media especially
1: instagram is sort of a digital footprint of who you are your work and we also use instagram just to talk casually as well so it's usually whatsapp and instagram that go hand in hand for professional and casual conversations and a lot of people just don't check their emails so texting them on whatsapp or instagram is the quickest way to get their attention and get a faster response as well Zena, i don't think i actually know anyone in gen z you keep us young on this show
2: I know. You I keep know about, us
1: with the trends.
2: With the trends. I know five Gen Zers <laughs> and I feel 20 years younger. And initially, when I met them, I said, never call me Auntie. This is they, a work They do not call you
1: at, uh, they would not think of calling you Auntie. It's work. What do you talk?
2: On our street, I'm Zina Auntie. They call you Zina Auntie at, uh, uh, Zena Auntie at work? Do. No, on our street. Oh, on your street. Okay. And these are Gen Zers. So okay, like, okay. In any other setting, that would not be okay, especially in the workplace setting. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> God. I had
1: a heart attack thinking your work colleagues were calling you Zina Auntie. I was really confused. <laughs> I see. So on your street where you live, there are a couple yeah. people that are sort of in their 20s that call you Zina Auntie. That's a bit much.
2: That's a bit much. So when I met these Gen Zers, that's the first thing I told them. I do not appreciate being called Auntie. Anyway. <laughs> There's another Gen Zer called Sahil, Shatigar. He doesn't mind using emails, but it depends on what kind of correspondence it is. As
7: a photographer and a filmmaker, my preferred mode of communication would definitely be social media and through mails. I know living in this generation, mails are boring to use and a lot of youngsters just don't like using them. But I find them to be so peaceful and straight to the point. While dealing with big clients or clients with a lot of requirements, mailing them their quotations is much easier, and when it comes through mails, you're expected to wait a while for a reply back. But when it comes to quickly getting things done and reaching out to a lot of people, I'd always prefer social media. Networking with people has never been easier than through social media like Instagram and WhatsApp. And when it comes to communicating with other people through social media, the other person already knows a little bit of your personality. Either through your posts or stories, which make it flexible as well, to be the person you truly are while texting them. I can easily reach my clients on like a higher pace since the whole world opens social media more than fifteen and twenty times a day. Social media and mails are one of the best sources of communications to me.
1: remote work has become a major trend. And of course, a lot of corporates asking for their employees to come back into the office, a little bit of a struggle that we've seen around that. It's been interesting to see how this has developed. The UAE has recently ranked first in the Middle East, fourth globally as a leading destination for remote work. That's according to a new ranking by VisaGuide.world. And Along with remote work, one of the things that happens is the blending between travel for business and travel for pleasure. Now, approximately 62% of business travelers polled by Global Business Travel Association said they now combine work and leisure trips more often than they did, at least in 2019, about 42% saying they extend their business journey with extra leisure days. And we're pretty interested in this growth of what has been called bleisure. I don't know how I feel about that particular word, but, or that portmanteau, bleisure. Is it the new thing? or is it just a distraction to actually getting your work done? Let us know on 4001 if you're planning to extend your festive season holidays and actually manage to get a bit of work done while staying in another destination. Are you against it completely? Do you prefer to sort of keep a boundary between your work and your lifetime, especially when it comes to travel? To find out a little bit more about this, we're getting the thoughts now of Ali Haider. He is the director of Nomadic in the Middle East. It's a business travel technology firm which specializes in short-term immigration services. Ali, thanks for joining us on the agenda today.
8: Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
1: Now, Ali, tell us a little bit more about this concept of leisure, because business trips are typically on the shorter side. Let's say about three days would be the average. Is, is, are we seeing a trend of extending this to accommodate some leisure time as well?
8: Right right so so yeah i think i think that's a very very uh, interesting topic certainly something that's very pertinent and something that we're hearing about quite a bit you mentioned uh some of the statistics that the gbta uh, released as well i think uh, you know the origins of this trend or probably you know the i guess the recent kind of increase in the number of leisure travels we're seeing probably originates from the pandemic i know we're, we do we try not to mention the pandemic too much but uh uh you know there have there were some silver linings from it and I think one of the biggest things was uh, you know uh, it, it, there it's now a lot more widely accepted uh, you know amongst companies large or, or small that uh, you know work doesn't have to only be done from the office right uh, you know a lot of work can be done both effectively and efficiently uh, from home or, or remotely and, uh, you know, that's given, uh, you know, that's led to the rise of uh, a lot more people who are now working remotely full time for their employers or actually set up in other countries. And, uh, you know, that in itself has, uh, you know, that's that's a trend that's led to a merging of, uh, you know, business and leisure. The pleasure, as you mentioned, uh, a lot. Uh, there's obviously been a lot of pent up demand uh, for travel People couldn't travel due to obvious reasons because of the pandemic, and uh, there was a word that was thrown around a couple of years ago called "revenge travel," which is basically people getting back at COVID for not allowing them to travel. And uh, whilst that was probably a good way to describe the sentiment at that time, I think it's sort of morphed into, uh, you know, uh, the world at large embracing that you know travel business. Pleasure, these are all parts of life and they're sort of, you know, they're being effectively merged into one uh more and more. So so yeah, definitely something that we're seeing, definitely uh, a newer a new ish trend, I would say, and and something that shouldn't let up anytime soon.
1: You know, you said that people are embracing this. How are companies feeling about this? Are they embracing it or do they feel like actually employees are just taking a bit of advantage? Because I can't imagine and I've heard enough stories about you know, sure, when you're on holiday at the beach or you're on holiday with your folks where you get a couple of hours done, but you're really you're just racing to meet that deadline when you can clock off and enjoy yourself because in your mind you're on you're on holiday. How are how are companies reacting to this trend?
8: Yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, uh, we, uh, again, Nomadic being a part of uh, Fragomen, which, again, is, is is the world's largest immigration provider, we get access to, you know, the thoughts and sentiments of, uh, you know, HR people, HR leaders, uh, you know, management from some of the world's largest companies, uh, you know, MNCs, et cetera. And, and uh, you know, anecdotally, a lot of the feedback that we receive is in support of hybrid working policy. Uh, you know, certainly since the pandemic, we've actually seen the emergence of companies that are completely remote. Uh, you know, and they've they've done exceptionally well. There's a lot of EOR companies in that space that have you know you know delivered some exceptional growth in, in a very short span of time that are completely digital and remote. Uh, and a lot of your you know big Fortune 100 companies you know companies that have historically you know had a very uh, you know a strict approach or stance on working at the office are embracing hybrid work policies where people can work two to three days in the office and the rest from home, right? So, uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to say uh, the, the, the impact that it's had on productivity, but if if global sentiment is anything to go by, we do see this to be, you know, an increasingly, uh, you know, uh, popular trend. In fact, there was a survey done uh, by, uh, by Booking.com, which obviously has, you know, masses of data, and it showed that certain demographic groups millennials in particular uh you know were were leading the charge in terms of embracing a flexible lifestyle and 68% of them thought that they were able to do their job and do it well you know remotely so 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 yeah i would say i would say it is it's not certainly being a hindrance to productivity in any way
1: yeah and you know your company obviously a business travel firm what sort of data do you have on this particular matter for example is there a particular age group in the workforce that's driving this phenomenon i mean do we have information about how how trips are getting a bit longer
8: Right. So, uh, you know, apart from kind of millennials being the demographic that we're also, you know, noticing, uh, you know, as sort of valuing flexibility the most, uh, I think, you know, so we do have a lot of data. So our tool uh, uh, gives uh, travelers the ability to run assessments uh, in which they can plug in information on, you know, where they're going, where they're coming from and what they're going to be doing. And over 350,000 assessments uh, that were done in the past few years, we've noticed a definitive trend that shows that business trips are are getting longer, right? And and that seems to align very nicely with the data that the GBTA has as well, which shows that people are actually extending their trips to account for leisure days. And another interesting phenomenon that's that's you know something that we've uh, witnessed through our data is that business travel is very quickly becoming a segue or a precursor for longer term residency as well. And, and, and what I mean by that is business travelers are actually using this opportunity to gauge whether they'd like to live in a certain country for a longer period of time. And, and you know, countries like the UAE are, are giving people, uh, digital nomads and, and flexible workers, some amazing incentives to do just that. Uh, so that's what our data is showing, I think, in a nutshell.
1: Ali, thank you so much for taking some time to chat to us about that. Yeah, it definitely seems to be a clear trend that we're seeing. So thanks for coming on the show to discuss.
8: Thank you so much. This was a pleasure.
1: Still talking business travel and leisure travel, whether you want to call that pleasure or a workcation, does go by different names. It's certainly something that's gaining momentum. So now Shane Phillips, CEO of the Phillips Group, joins us to give us his take on this, of course from an HR perspective and a recruitment perspective as well. Shane, thanks for joining us on the agenda.
9: Thanks for having me. Always exciting to be here.
1: Now, Shane, we've been talking about the growth of the idea of extending your business trip and, and either tacking on a bit of leisure time with it or really blurring the lines between those two things in the first place. So tell us a little bit more uh, about what you make of it from an, from an HR point of view. Is, is this a good idea for companies to allow?
9: Well, I think first of all, the pleasure traveling is a hallmark of champion business people. And I think it's it's not a new event, although it may be now just coming into mainstream mainstream where it's entering middle and frontline management. But if you look at you know Titans of industry such as Isidore Sharp, who is you know the founder of Four Seasons hotels, when he went on his honeymoon, he made sure that he visited a different hotel every single night because he was so passionate about the hotel business and being a hotelier and learning from the different brands. Or if you look at the founder of Walmart, Sam Walton, whenever he went on vacation, he made sure he visited the other discount stores in the region to see what they were doing. And uh, and so you really see this passion, this overflowing passion for one's profession spilling over and, and creating that pleasure trip right uh, from, from way back uh, when. Now, I think if companies are starting to wisen up to say, hey, this is a great opportunity for us to increase engagement, to in- increase loyalty, to say, hey, you know, we're going to send you to New York. Why don't you, if you want to stay a couple extra days, you know, we would encourage you to do that. And maybe part of the the bill for the extra days is picked up by the employee or whatnot, or how the financials work is, is, an, is another story. But it's definitely a very wise approach and I think when executives take time to spend uh, uh, a, a recreational moments in the cities that they're visiting for work, it helps you also understand your client, understand the culture of your client, which is really key to being effective as a business person. So overall, it's a phenomenal uh, strategy. And, and I think that uh, companies now are focusing it as a strategic point. And I can also tell you, we're doing a search for a CEO of an airline And this is one of the strategic imperatives for that airline is is pleasure travel and capturing that segment.
1: Right. And, you know, when you talk about that example of somebody who's so passionate about what they do, but then again, they're in a very senior leadership position that they can't help but work on their honeymoon. I don't know how his partner felt about that particular move, but. I think what we seem to be seeing a lot more of now is not so much that people are so passionate that they want to work on their holidays, but that they want a holiday when they're, they're working. And when someone is in another city just waiting to clock off so that they can shift into holiday mode, are companies really getting value from the work time that they're putting in?
9: Well, I think that is a totally different um, perspective on it, that these people want a holiday while they're working versus being so passionate about what you're doing so for example we had a, a teacher in high school who was a history teacher mm-hmm. and when he went on vacation he would make his own history documentaries and this was back in the day when you know video quality was horrible so he would come back with these you know poorly shot personally made history docs but they were so overflowing with passion that we learned so much from him and he really enjoyed making them and so that's a, another example of you know the pleasure trip that really is in line with with the career. Now, if somebody doesn't like their job and the first thing they want to do is go take a vacation, it's not necessarily going to help the company. But you know, if you're super excited uh, about you know visiting P G's, you know how, how did how did Tide how was Tide invented? Uh, let's go see the factory where the first uh, line was made, or you know how did you know you're interested in the history of it and you're visiting that and also enjoying yourself. Um, You know, if you go back to the example of Isidore Sharp, his wife was extremely passionate about being a hotelier as well, and she loved understanding the business and learning and growing. So it's not necessarily that you want someone to just totally take the first opportunity to stop working and kick your feet up, but you want someone who's so passionate about what they're doing that there's a mix. So for example, we just had a business trip in Dukum. We visited Dukum Port in Oman, and so there was a lot of business happening there, but at the end of the day, at, at 4.30, we jumped in the car and we went out to an ancient burial site that's 7,000 years old, uh, just outside of Port. And, you know, we took an hour and visited that with, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of our local uh, friends there. And it was really fascinating. And so I think that's the kind of thing where it works. I think if you have people that are just totally disengaged and looking for an, a chance to break off uh, on the company dime, then you have an issue. Then you have an engagement issue and you probably have an assessment issue and an and a hiring issue because you're hiring probably the wrong people.
1: Right. And just the last one for you, Shane, while we've got you is it seems to be, especially with younger generations, the rigid nine to five it can be a bit of a struggle for, for different people. Is this, a good retention strategy—the idea of, yeah, sure, we'll send you on a business trip. But if you want to tack on another five days of holiday afterwards, that's you know, go for it, and we're covering the business ticket, but you get your expenses. Is that a good retention strategy to get people a bit more comfortable staying in that more rigid corporate role?
9: Well, first of all, I think people need to realize the nine to five is dead. It's buried. It's finished. It's over. COVID killed it if there was any mm-hmm. chance or semblance of it left. So I think now, really, you really are, yeah, and work, and with that, work life balance has died. And so, what you kind of have is this mix of work life mixture that you kind of uh, have to manage between, you know, being a parent, being a father or mother, being a professional, leading a team, leading your company. And and so I think any leader who now is really going to try to enforce a nine to five is going to be on the losing end of a battle that they just won't win. Um, And with that, I think, comes that that pleasure equation where it's a really great thing to say, hey, you know what? Why don't you go over to uh, Saudi and, you know, spend a weekend and go look and go visit Daria Gate and go visit end of the world and go. uh, You know, there's some amazing hiking trips. And actually, when you spend the weekend and you go hiking, if you ever, if anyone out there has been to End of the World or Al-Ula or some of these amazing sites, you really start to understand the culture and the history and the heritage. And this really also makes you more effective at doing business with people in the region when you understand the region that you're doing business with. So I think, I don't know if that answers your question, because I did go on a bit of a tangent that the nine to five is dead. And so companies need to embrace this. Uh, If your staff, I have, you know, I have interacted with people who are working from Bali, although all their business was in uh, Europe. And so I think this is kind of the environment when the digital, you know, the birth of the digital nomad and the death of the nine to five. And and it is putting a big threat on being able to manage that work life balance, making sure that you don't get overrun, become a workaholic or go the other direction And pretend you're working at home when you're really hanging out with your kids. Mm -hmm. It's about having that professional discipline to inculcate that balance into your work environment.
1: Yeah, Glenn has agreed with you on the text line saying, pleasure, travel with work, then stay a couple days for sightseeing. I would encourage that in my team. It's not somebody wanting to holiday while at work. So it's a big distinction there about people who are committed. And it's a good and healthy thing for them to have a little bit of extra time to do that as well. Shane, thank you so much for joining us as always.
9: Thank you for having me.
0: You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda.
0: On Dubai Eye 103.8.